Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come again before you. Uh, we confess uh, and give you praise and thanks that this is your word written down expressly as you have breathed it out. And we pray, dear Lord, that as we hear it preached now, that you would bless that word as it goes forth, and it would go forth in truth, and that it would go forth even with the affection that you would desire to see it go forth with. And Lord, that it would also be heard and received in a manner worthy of you, the God who speaks and is not silent. And so Lord God, we pray now as we come before you, give us hearts that are ready to hear it. Help us, Lord, to bend our lives and our wills towards you. We pray that the instrument of your word this morning, and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Dear Lord, and so it's in Christ's name that we pray all of this. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17. Please do give your full attention. <clears throat> this is the word of our God. <clears throat> but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. For if in the first place when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it, not the Lord's, uh, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is... For you, do this in remembrance of me. <clears throat> in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction, directions when I come. So far, the reading of God's word, the grass withers, <clears throat> and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord indeed endures forever. 
We continue this morning in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. We're working through uh, the study of Paul's epistle. And you will recall, remember back when we began our study in this epistle, uh, remember some of the problems and issues that he is confronting. These are issues dealing with factions, you'll recall, and divisions uh, amongst those in Corinth. Recall it was a personality-driven church driven by personalities, uh, divisions and party factions had developed under certain teachers over against other teachers. And we saw as we looked uh, at Corinthian, as we've seen as we worked through Paul's discussion here, that one of the other big problems at Corinth was their continued falling back or carrying on in worship in ways that were just like the culture out of which they had been saved. Their worship was indistinguishable from the practice of that culture. And this is a big problem. As those who belong to Jesus Christ, God's people, they have been called out of the world. They are distinct from the world. And this is part and parcel in understanding the sacraments. More largely, particularly the sign of God's covenant people, baptism. God's people have been marked out. They are no longer the world's. And so they receive, they are given the sign identifying who they are, members of the covenant community. And this is part of what it means to be holy and to be saints, to be called out ones. That's what the church means. It's those called out, the assembly, those called out to assemble for worship. Not only their lives, but especially their worship there at Corinth looked like the world. It was a world-driven worship that they were engaging in. And that was a problem. And it's a problem for the church down throughout the ages, even in our day. Uh, We are not to conduct ourselves in worship in a way that looks like or caters to the world around us. We, like the Corinthians, like all of Christ's people, are to ground ourselves and bound ourselves to God's way, to God's design, to God's desire. Because we have been given new life in Christ, brothers and sisters, because of that, and we've been called out from the rest of the world, therefore we are united as God's people in our common faith in Jesus Christ. We are not divided along socioeconomic lines or uh, divided uh, because of race issues or any other lines as the world is, as was apparently the case in Corinth. If you look at your liturgy this morning, uh, you'll see in the back there, there is an outline. Um, it is good outline. And we'll use that outline. Uh, we'll just not use it this morning. Um, we'll be looking at the second half of uh, 1 Corinthians 11, like I said, this week and next week. And so next week we'll be following that outline that is before you. But for today, uh, we're going to look more specifically at verses 17 to 26. And as we do so, we see in broad strokes, right, the apostle, by way of the Holy Spirit, he discusses in verses 17 to 22, the poor practice of the Lord's Supper. That's the first thing that he discusses. Verses 17 to 22, he looks at the poor practice of the Lord's Supper. And he looks at these different parties. And he looks at the pagan-like worship. And he rebukes them for it. 
And then secondly, in verses 23 to 26, he discusses the proper practice of the Lord's Supper. The proper practice. And he gives a prescription. And he talks about the proclamation and the preaching of the gospel in the taking, remembering uh, of the, uh, uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Quite fascinating. So the poor practice and then the proper practice. Uh, you'll recall that in 1 Corinthians chapters 11 to 14, Paul gives an account of, of what actually happened during worship, during the worship of an apostolic church, right? That is, during the time of the apostles. He describes what is going on there, and he interacts with this. And from what Paul tells us here, it is clear that worship involved what? At its high point was the proclamation of Christ crucified. That was the high point, the pinnacle the word was the pinnacle of worship. And then the culmination point was what? It was the celebration of the supper. Right? So we have the proclamation of the word and then the celebration of the supper. And really, we see this pattern laid down throughout God's word. Uh, we don't have time to get into um, all of the patterning or the rationale for all of that uh, in this hour this morning. Uh, but it is a fascinating study. Um, and it is a, a refreshing study. And it is... Uh, it's very interesting, and we can and do get into uh, some of that in detail in places like our inquirers class. Um, but for now, what is the problem there at Corinth? What is going on there? Again, it was that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper in a manner that was nearly indistinguishable from the banquets held in the pagan temples or at the halls of the guilds. Paul pulls no punches regarding what is going on here. He rebukes them, and thankfully he does so. We can give thanks and praise for that because his instruction and rebuke to them was divinely preserved for us, his people, uh, even today. And as Paul does so, he lays out the meaning for, the, for us uh, of the Lord's Supper, and he lays out for us why the Lord's Supper plays such an important role in Christian worship. In the fuller passage, which I read uh, in its entirety, <clears throat> verses 17 to 34, we have there the earliest account of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. Right? You'll remember when 1 Corinthians was written. It was written in around 54 AD. And so this is before the Gospels had been written down and inscripturated. And so this is the earliest account of that. And the Lord's Supper discussed, discussed here gives us great insight into the celebration uh, of that supper from the earliest times of the church. Uh, the Lord's Supper, as you may uh, have, uh, you may know, is the New Testament. Sorry, the New Covenant correspondent to the Passover meal that the Jews celebrated. And like the Passover, the Lord's Supper was originally celebrated as part of a larger fellowship meal that came after what we would recognize as the main worship service. And we'll look more at this next week and the changes that happened and why changes have happened and why that's not the case today. We'll look at that next week, but like we have seen before uh, in our discussion in, in chapters, particularly 10 and the first half of 11, uh, the backdrop, right, um, when we look at these things, the cultural backdrop helps us understand what's going on in Corinth and some of the reason Paul is saying some of the things that he is saying. And as we look at the abuse of the Lord's Supper in Corinth, which we are looking at this morning, what is that backdrop? The backdrop of that Greco-Roman culture with its communion meals and its feasting 
is vital to consider. Vital to consider. Because there were these pagan temples and halls and guilds, and in them they would worship their gods. All and These were all around the city. In these temples, in these halls, it was common to celebrate these meals and these banquets. And so the Corinthians would have been aware of these kinds of communal meals going on in these temples and guild halls. And as was the practice, they would have, right, they would have only eaten with people in the same social class or as the same profession, profession as they were, or only eaten meals with those of the same religious group. Right? The supper instituted by Jesus was intended to unite the people of God in their common faith in Christ. It certainly was not intended to divide the church. And division was one of Paul's main concerns, as we see throughout this letter. <clears throat> Precisely, uh, he intended for it to be to focus on the unity, right? And so, uh, but this is what was going on in Corinth, and we've seen this time and again. We've discussed in the past the significance of meals in that culture, right? They were, meals were had a much more uh, a much more significant um, uh, much more significance in that day than in our days. Right, meals were very important. <clears throat> For those in that culture, sharing a meal meant much more. It meant much, much more than in ours. And it meant a bond had been established uh, between those sharing that meal. And as we'll see uh, in God's word, eating together often happened at the culmination of the covenant. When the covenant was made, very often they would share a meal afterwards. And in the Mediterranean world, Eating together really was a communal, relational building activity. So there was great aversion to eating with those of a different class than you. Right? The rich did not eat with the poor. The Greeks did not share meals with the, with the Jews. And this cultural practice and the cultural influence would have been great on the believers at Corinth. It would have been easy as it is for every believer in their day to resort back to their former pagan habits. Right? The world and its culture has an influence on us. And it would have been easy during the Lord's Supper to act like they acted at these feasts in the temples before they were believers. And as a result of these things, the meal of union, this meal of maturity, was causing disunity because of the way it was being abused. They were acting like pagans. And they were acting like pagans, and it resulted in hurting the family of God. May we, brothers and sisters, may we, in our practice, be deliberate about the influence of the world around us, on us. And may we be deliberate and purposeful about the way we act and the way that we treat others. You know, our Bibles have much to say about one anothering, right? Have you heard that phrase before? One anothering, the one another commands in the Bible. Um, there are many of these. And so let us be diligent about our own as well self-righteous based judgment on all those around us. Let us always acknowledge in love that it's okay that others are not just like me, right? We've all seen or been hurt by those who do not do this. It is disorienting when we encounter those who are different than us, but we must learn from God that he is a great artist and a great creator, and his creativity is without measure. 
And so it would stand to reason that his creation would bear reflection of this, that it would be varied and that it would be diverse. So if if you've ever been harmed by someone, someone else's judgment upon you because you were different than them, you know what I'm talking about. It's hard to look outside of ourselves and realize, oh, not everybody's not like me. Well, everybody doesn't need to be like me. It's okay. It's hard. That's the problem with it, right? When we do this, we make ourselves the standard, make ourselves the judge, the judge of all that is right. What's wrong with that? Well, God is the one who sets the standard, right? He is the judge. And when we get locked into our own head and our own heaviness and our own unbendable system, we have a problem. We have a problem. Why is that? Because I'm not perfect, and you're not perfect either, right? Neither are you, dear Christian. So uh, are we to divide over truth and error? Certainly. This is affirmed all throughout the Bible, right? John 7, 24. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. But a judgment, a right judgment is based on what? It's based on God's word, not on my word, not on your word. It's based on not my or your preferences or opinions or dogma. Right judgment is based upon, is grounded in God's holy word. May he ever give us mercy and lead us in love to extend that towards others, taking care in the attitudes of our hearts. And so the abuses that we see at Corinth made these divisions that already existed all the worse. What was meant to unite the body of Christ was the occasion for division and distinctions being made. In verses 17 to 22, Paul brings his first concern. And that regards the poor treatment of the poor, right? The poor treatment of the poor. Indeed, it is, it is, this is the poor practice of the supper. Uh, look at verse 17. Paul says, But in the following instruction, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Notice how, remember how Paul began, if you go back to, chapter, to verse 2 of chapter 11. Notice how he began. He says, now I commend you, right? Because you remember me and you maintain the traditions. But he gives the opposite here in verse 17, right? He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And the reason is that they're gathering together for worship. We're doing more harm than good. And he continues with details in verse 18. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. It's been reported to Paul that there are divisions in the church when it gathers together for worship. And it's interesting here when we look at this text, uh, when Paul refers to church, the word there in verse 18, when you come together as a church, there's no definite article there. There's no the, it's just ecclesia, right? Just ecclesia. And the idea conveyed by this is that Paul is referencing the gathering together of God's people, right? That is the assembly as they are gathered together for worship, even as we are here this morning. It's not a reference likely to the institution of the church, but to the called out assembly of God's people for worship, as they are gathered together for worship. And he says, as you come together as a church, Right, and here the discussion, or rather the divisions being spoken of, the schismata is the word, schismatic, 
It's where we get the word. It's where we get the word uh, in English for schism or schismatic, right? These divisions are regarding what? They're regarding rich or poor, right? Social uh, classes or social status or divisions of the Jews and the Gentile. And there were some who had enough food and others who did not. And recall back in verse, in chapter 10, Paul has just discussed the glorious unity that is true of and is to be reflected in the body. Again, chapter 10, verse 17, he says, because there is one bread and we who are many are one body for we all partake of one bread. But this unity is not present with the Corinthians uh, when, they, when they celebrate the fellowship meal. How can there be true koinonia, true fellowship, true partnership in and with one another if people are angry with each other and they're divided? How can there be koinonia and fellowship? There cannot be. And so verse 19, Paul references factions or parties. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. as we move on, he says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Right? And so we see here an affirmation that God allows controversy in his providential care and ordering of his church. He allows this to make known the genuineness of individual believers. Those who are genuine, he says there in verse 19, they're the ones who receive God's approval for their action in the midst of controversies like this. So there are these parties who line up with God's truth and there are those who do not. And then Paul addresses, he goes from these parties, he's talking about these factions, to these pagan lookalikes in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Right? It cannot be. This is not what the Lord's Supper is. Because of these divisions, this is not the supper instituted by Jesus, the King of Kings, of which they are partaking. It is not. Rather, what, they are what, they are, what, what is taking place was similar to the pagan practices out of which they had been saved and that they should have abandoned. And as we saw last time in the first half of chapter 11, right, we are not to be confused about what, in what we do, whether it's eating or drinking or dressing or whatever. We're not to confuse who we are and what we are. We're no longer pagans. Stop acting like pagans in worship. Stop bringing that into the church. Stop bringing the world into the church. And then he describes this, he discusses this in verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And this meal of communion with God's people and with their Lord Jesus was meant to be different from the pagan communal meals associated with those temples and those guilds all around town. And if the Corinthian Christians were partaking properly of the Lord's Supper as instituted by Jesus, there would be no drunkenness and there would be no one who was going hungry. And most vitally, and more importantly, there would be the exaltation of Jesus by way of proclamation of his death. But this isn't happening in Corinth. It greatly distresses Paul. People from various parties were rushing in ahead and gobbling up the food without care of anyone else. 
Maybe they were the ones who provided the food, who wanted to dig in because they had brought the food after all. We don't know. Maybe there were foods prepared by certain ethnic groups or factions uh, that others wouldn't eat. Whatever the particulars, all of this is going on is not only rude and inconsiderate, but it has just made worse the divisions that already existed and were potentially there at Corinth. They were doing more harm than good. But worst of all, again, uh, all of these issues gutted the supper of the glorious nature and declaration it was intended to carry. And as is so often when this happens, that which is glorious is diminished and decayed in its glory because of what man does in error to what uh, God has instructed us to do. They were worrying about this and that, and they were putting themselves first over against others. All the while, they should be through the supper, what? Preaching the visible gospel, proclaiming his death, feeding their sick and weary souls. What a scandal indeed that was going on that Paul is addressing here. And then the next verse explains even more, verse 22. Is what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I command you in this? No, I will not. It was intended to be a communal meal. That some were not sharing contradicted this intention. It is plain and clear. They were not acting like one body, but they were looking after their own desires. And all of this with no regard whatsoever for the true purpose of the supper, what that was. He says, you have houses in which to do these selfish and overindulgent things. They're not to be done in corporate worship and destroy what the supper is. That which is intended to unite the church should not be the occasion to divide the church. But sadly it was. And so Paul moves from his discussion of the poor practice of the church and his, his rebuke and chastisement of what was going on. He moves on from that to verses 23 to 26. And the, he discusses uh, the proper practice of the Lord's Supper. The proper practice of the Supper. And he goes on to give instruction on how the Supper is rightly to be celebrated in his church. Uh, in the church. And he goes on to do so. And notice, uh, it's interesting here. Paul does a couple of things. First, he gives the words of the institution. right? The words of the institution as he received them from the Lord. And then secondly, and, more, and most interestingly, he gives an imperative that is alone here in the New Testament. It's nowhere else given. And that imperative is that it is to celebrate the Lord's Supper until the Lord returns, and then notice to do so, because when we do, we proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim his death. Very interesting. Uh, but first, let's look at verses 23 to 24. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Paul starts the verse reminding them of where these words come from. right? And he is wont to do this through all of his ministry, remembering and reminding people. I'm not the origin. I speak the word of another. I've been commissioned by the Lord. I've been sent by him. These are his. This is what he says. And that's a good reminder for us in our interaction, in our discussions, right? This is what we're telling people, right? It's not from me. It's from here. 
And so it's always safe and healthy and right to properly hide behind God's word. This is where the power is, right? And so Paul is want to do, want to do this throughout his writings. And he reminds them there uh, of where the words come from. And he uses here these technical terms of receiving and delivering. I received what I also delivered. And this is a reference to the, 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 the receiving and passing on of oral instruction. And of course, not, or, not all oral tradition is reliable. You'll remember that in God's mercy, he shows us the corruptible and unreliable nature of oral tradition alone, even in the time of the apostles. And this is very interesting. Turn to John chapter 21 for a moment. the end of uh, John's gospel here, there's this interesting blessing that we're given uh, that sometimes we just read right over. But it's John chapter 21, starting at verse 20. It says this, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You must follow me. And so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Right? And so we see right there, <clears throat> even in the time of the apostles, it tells us of the corruptible nature of the oral, merely oral tradition. It tells us something about the claim that we need both the oral and the written traditions to have God's completed word. I don't know if you've heard this before, but this is something that certain groups teach. I mean, both the oral and the written, as if they're different, Right? And properly understood, we have the oral tradition. Uh, it is right here, set down and scripturated to protect it from corruption. God had ordered it to be put down in writing. And so we don't have two things that come into the church. We have one thing that came in two ways. And God preserved that for us in this, his word. And so this is why we must affirm that his word, God's holy word, is protected, preserved, proclaimed to his people. Praise God and glory that it is. It is our final authority for life and godliness. Paul here speaks of that word that he received from the word, Jesus Christ. Right? I deliver to you that which I re received. Right? I deliver to you, I, I receive, for what I received from the Lord is what I also deliver to you. It is a sure word. Right? Praise God, it is a sure word. And it is the oral teaching of Jesus himself, which Paul received. And now listen to what Paul is saying here. Here are some important points to help us in understanding what we believe about the sacrament and why we believe it. Paul refers, he refers to the bread with the words, this is my body, this is my body. And notice what Jesus didn't say here. He didn't say the bread becomes my body. Right? He didn't say that. He didn't say my body is in, with, and under the bread. He didn't say that either. He also didn't say this bread merely represents or symbolizes my body. 
didn't say any of those things. And notice also, as we look at the remainder of this passage, there are problems for those who would teach those above points about the elements of the supper. Jesus does not refer, and now listen to this, he does not refer uh, here to the wine as his blood. You see that? What does he refer to the wine as in this passage? As Paul recounts it, as Jesus gave it. He refers to to the wine as the new covenant in his blood. See that? Wine is the new covenant. Uh, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so the teaching that the sign, the bread, turns into the thing signified, Christ's flesh, and the teaching that the essence of the supper is only memorial, where nothing is received, neither of those can make sense of the sacramental language of Jesus from his mouth that says, this is my body. And this use of sacramental language is not new to us. Jesus uses this language in John chapter 6, right? You'll recall, and we won't go there now. Perhaps in a couple weeks we'll go there. Uh, But recall, he's talking about this, eating, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then later in the verse, he says, the flesh profits nothing. I said, we know something else is going on there. He's not talking about physically those things. It's sacramental language. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, that we read a number of weeks ago, a number of months ago now, when he speaks of Christ as the rock, remember? And Christ was that rock that followed us. And he speaks of the manna as spiritual food. And he speaks of baptism into Moses and into the cloud. It's prefiguring Christian baptism. And so when we use sacramental language, we simply mean that there is a sign, bread and wine in this case, and the thing signified, his body and blood, which indeed signifies and points to the new covenant in his blood. And when sacramental language is used, the one thing, the bread, can be spoken of as the other thing. This is my body. That's our text in verse 24 here. It's critical to note also, brothers and sisters, is that Paul is emphatic that Jesus gives his body for us. He gives his body for us. And I will never tire of reminding you that the glorious and wonderful thing, dear brothers and sisters, is not that there is a Messiah who gave his body for some people out there. The glorious and wonderful thing Thing, the life-giving, uh, a passion-providing, assurance-invigorating thing is this, that there is a Messiah who gave his body for you as you belong to him, right? If you do so, if you belong to this Jesus, if you placed your faith in him, entrusted in him for who he is and what he has accomplished by his perfect life and his work on the cross and in his resurrection, if you have fled to him, in all of your brokenness and blackness for that mercy, he has provided that mercy. Praise God. And he has made real the forgiveness of all of your sins. And he has freed you, dear Christian. You are free from the guilt of your sins and from the bondage of your sins and from the failure to be who you must before a holy and righteous God. All of this For the one united to him by faith, you are so because what? He gave his body for you. 
gave his body for us. Oh, what glorious truth and comfort and drive for us weak and feeble men and women. Glory indeed. And so we must never lose sight of this whenever we partake of the supper. Right? We must never lose sight of this. The atonement made in our place, his life for ours, must never be forgotten. We must never ever, brothers and sisters, have a ho-hum indifference attitude about what is going on and what has been done. Is there anything more glorious or awe-inspiring? And the essence of the Lord's Supper, as a friend of mine says, the essence of the Supper is that the same Jesus who gave himself for us on the cross gives himself to us in the Supper. Right? The same Jesus who gave himself for us on the cross gives himself to us in the Supper. Glorious, wonderful, amazing love indeed. Let your hearts be warned, brothers and sisters, these glorious truths. Uh, the sacrament is both a sign and a seal of his redemptive work for us. It is also a covenant renewal semin- uh, ceremony. <laughs>